In September 1780, a ragtag group of backwoodsmen from what is today North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia assembled to begin a journey to defend their homes and belief in liberty. They met their destiny at Kings Mountain, and this is their story. The Mitchell County Historical Society presents Footsteps for Freedom, The Road to Kings Mountain. We welcome you into episode 31 of Footsteps for Freedom, The Road to Kings Mountain. This is our wrap-up podcast, I guess you would call it, and we're going to be discussing the battle, the people, the events, and the time around Kings Mountain amongst ourselves, uh, the folks who actually worked on writing the podcast and editing it. So a um, little bit of an introduction, and uh, hopefully you can kind of get an idea of, of who worked on this uh, lead, leading up to what we're going to talk about this evening. A little about me, I'm David Biddix, and uh, I'm a member of the Mitchell County Historical Society, and uh, we had an opportunity given to us to help promote the Battle of Kings Mountain, and I'm going to let uh, Jonathan Bennett talk a little bit more about that here in a few minutes. But uh, anyways, I'm, I'm just an amateur. Uh, I don't have a degree or anything in history. I just love it, and I've worked with it for years, and it's it's been a, a pleasure to do this podcast. I've really learned a lot about Kings Mountain and the characters involved with it, and it's been kind of surprising. So uh, with that said, Jonathan, why don't you go next? My name is... Um uh, Jonathan Howard Bennett. I'm a National Park Ranger on the Blue Ridge Parkway. I'm stationed at Gillespie Gap, which is where the Overmountain Victory National Historic Trail crosses the parkway at. Um, and I've been in charge of uh, the parkway's uh, largest special event, which is the Overmountain Victory Celebration, uh, since uh, 2006. And uh, so I've been doing that for more than a decade now. And before I was uh, in charge of the event, I was uh, uh, heavily involved in recruiting school groups and other things for it for about the three years prior to that. So I've been actually working with it here for about three years. Um, my educational background is I uh, had a, a Bachelor of Arts degree from Wake Forest University in uh, uh, history and archaeology and uh, did some military history work uh, for a master's degree at East Carolina. And I've done a number of um, archaeological surveys on the Overmountain Victory Trail including at uh, Quaker Meadows in Morganton, um, uh, up in Happy Valley near where uh, the Tom Dooley stuff happens um, about a century later. And um, I did uh, the survey work for the uh, Overmountain Victory section that was uh, constructed from Gillespie Gap to Ling Gap. And uh, we also uh, was part of the team that searched for the uh, Cane Creek battlefield uh, that was um, in the month prior to the Kings Mountain campaign. Okay, and we might also add that he did the vast majority of writing on this, and people don't know that. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we couldn't have done it without you is all I can say. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, David did actually probably more writing than I did. I actually wrote the later scripts and sort of fact-checked some of the earlier ones. But Now, we also have somebody else with us tonight. So, uh, Rhonda? Hi, I'm Rhonda Gunter, and I am a retired uh, community college history teacher. Um, nearly 30 years at Maywood Community College, where I taught American history. Uh, just a survey class, of course, so we never could go into such wonderful detail as, as these podcasts have done about the Overmountain Men and the Battle of Kings Mountain. I'm also uh, with the Historical Society, Mitchell County Historical Society. So I'm uh, able to work with uh, David on the board and our other great board members and uh, with Jonathan as our consultant. And she says she's retired. That's a joke. <laughs> I believe you're busier than you ever were at Malin, it seems like. At least no papers to grade. There you go. There you go. Okay, for next little bit, we're just going to chat a little bit about the battle and some of these folks and, uh, and give you some thoughts about a few things that we either didn't get to include in the podcast or we might want to expand on a little bit that we did include. So uh, with that said, why don't we tackle... What I think is the most interesting question, and that is the story or the event or the person maybe that uh, sticks out most in your mind about this, about the Battle of Kings Mountain or about the Overmountain Men. So who wants to take that first? There's um, a large number of them that stick out in my mind and that you could pick from. But um, one of the stories that I really enjoyed was um, 
the uh, Virginia militiaman, I forget his name now, that uh, in the middle of the battle, his uh, brother was killed. And uh, uh, they told him that there was, that his brother had been shot. And so he kind of um, loses his head for a minute and uh, he uh, leaves cover and he starts looking for his brother, hoping against hope that hopefully his uh, brother's just been wounded, not actually killed like they were saying. But uh, he does find him, his brother was killed. He had actually wandered a little too close to the uh, to the lines uh, and was a very in danger of getting killed himself. He managed to get the cover, and then that's whenever Colonel Benjamin Cleveland, who was from another militia unit, didn't recognize him, ish, uh, called on him to give the challenge. Um, the guy was too flustered to remember it, and so uh, Cleveland tried to kill him. He, uh, uh, put his rifle up and shot at him, but the, uh, the gun misfired. And so the militiaman pulled out his tomahawk in a rage and tried to kill Cleveland until finally another guy came over and pulled him off of him. So it's just an uh, interesting uh, and that really, That's something that really stands out to me is how undisciplined so mm-hmm. often mm-hmm. the Overmountain militia was. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, the, the commanders had a terrible time getting them in order. Um, Commanders had a terrible time deciding who was in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that stood out to me. I think the, the trip between uh, Gilberttown and Morganton, there where they're in camp for two days, and basically, I guess they're so flustered that, that they're can't, you know, in, in this area and they can't move, and they, they basically break out and fight amongst themselves. Uh, I think that kind of summed it up for me, you know, when, when you were talking about that. And it's, it's really the, the trademark so often of the over mountain well the whole backcountry settlers you know many of them had moved out there to get away from any kind of authority they didn't like following rules that's that's why they did it i think the biggest thing i would take from it and it's not a a, an individual person but uh the humanity of it uh and i you know i don't know how you feel about this ronda but i know whenever i've studied it as a child and, and on maybe even in college we always had this i'll call it good versus evil you know patrick ferguson is this right you know he's this evil man who makes these boastful statements and uh, john severe and isaac shelby were you know these these heroes but after getting into this i'm really surprised because they're people just like the rest of us and everybody has faults and uh, some people you think have lots of faults aren't maybe as bad as you thought, <laughs> you know, and, and also about Ferguson, we may get into that a little bit more later, but, uh, that's, that's kind of what I think there when, when I look at, uh, what really sticks out in my mind. So mm-hmm. who would be your favorite character in this whole story? If you had to pick one. Well, there's a lot of good choices. Um, uh, uh if you read, um, Draper's King's Mountain and Heroes, I think, um, the character or the figure of, uh, Isaac Shelby really sticks out. But um, I kind of like the local connection that uh, uh, Joseph Dobson had. Uh, he was involved in a lot of the little bits of it, uh, from some of the skirmishing down at Cane Creek to uh, serving as the uh, courier that's taking the messages between the, uh, uh, the different colonels whenever they're trying to get it organized. He gets wounded at the battle. His father uh, is one of the first university-trained physicians in Western North Carolina, so he's on the battlefield. Or he's um, he also treats uh, some of the wounded, but he doesn't end up treating his own son. He ends up his boy gets uh, treated by the British surgeon, Doctor Russell Johnson. So uh, I think uh, Dobson's one of those uh, characters that uh, that doesn't get a lot of attention, but uh, he's a, just an interesting one to me. Uh, you have to admire Shelby and Severe for their organizational skill, pulling the, you know, pulling them together at Sycamore Shields. Although uh, John Severe is my least favorite person, probably because of Nola Chucky Jack, as he was known in mm-hmm. the brutal campaigns against the Cherokee, he's probably my least favorite. Well, it's kind of interesting because to me, he's the most overblown in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody well, thinks I mean, it's all about in him. Eastern Tennessee, yeah. Yeah. And, and yes, he had a big part in it, but I don't think, I'm like Jonathan, I think Isaac Shelby. Well, know. the thing is, Shelby went on to Kentucky, yeah. whereas Severe stayed in Tennessee and became first governor and so forth. And so everything in Eastern Tennessee is named for him, right? Mm-hmm. I, I was kind of impressed with William Campbell. 
I mean, here's this, I'll call him young guy. I mean, he's what, in his mid-30s, somewhere around there. Uh, but yet he's dealing with these older fellas, and yet they're pushing him to, to leave. Uh, and, you know, he, he took it upon himself, although... Well, he's Patrick Henry's brother-in-law. Yeah, that's true. Although later, and, and I thought, you know, here's our first little tidbit that didn't make it in the podcast. Uh, after he passes away, which is just before Yorktown, yeah, yeah um, he is, I'll, I'll say, disparaged. Even by Shelby and, and the others, they had this huge debate over, did he really lead at Kings Mountain? I mean, there were, there were a couple of uh, accounts that didn't even have him on the battlefield while it was going on. And I, I was kind of surprised about that. Yeah, it's one of the, the bickering been between the colonels after the war, uh, especially long after the war, right? Mm-hmm. When you were getting into the next century, they're getting to be old men and they're basically, it's a little unseemly how they're arguing back and forth over who deserves the most credit. And so they end up slandering each other. It's not yeah, the best part of it. Yeah. Now that also brings something that I just want to hit on right up front. And that's the fact that, you know, this, I'll, we'll call it a pivotal battle because it really was. Uh, but it, it lapses into obscurity rather rapidly after it happened. I mean, you know, Yorktown and Saratoga and all these apparently, you know, stayed in the forefront of the nation's conscience, but Kings Mountain kind of disappears, even though that's what eventually drives Cornwallis into Virginia and, and to surrender. I think most of that Southern campaign kind of, well, the thing is, most of our history books in those years were written by Northerners. Mm-hmm. So the southern angle was largely kind of, you know, second tier. Yeah. What do you think about that, John? Well, um, a lot of the history didn't really get written until after the Civil War, and a lot of the southern historians exactly. are really focused on the, uh, the the American Civil War, trying to justify mm-hmm. the South's role in that. And so the, uh, the early histories that get written about the Revolution get written from another perspective from the northern perspective but at the time it was certainly noted as the pivotal event you described and not only on the Whig side but also the british you know recognized that one of the commanders i forget which british commander was said that this is the beginning of the end yeah Uh, no more um loyalists to be counted on in the south most likely yep so let, let's play, I guess, trivia time or fact time. Uh, over the 30 episodes, we explored a lot of different things. I mean, we, we looked at the Overmount men coming from Tennessee. We looked, like you said, at them coming out of Wilkes County and Happy Valley. They're meeting Quaker Meadows, et cetera. So is there a fact or something that maybe you learned that you didn't know before we started working on this? The early episodes we did on the, the lead up to the campaign, like the stuff with the Cherokee War and mm-hmm. a lot of the raids in the Catawba River Valley and um, uh, different attacks on the different settlers and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of the detail about the different uh, uh, Cherokee raids during the 1776 uh, Cherokee War, that especially the raids that went into the North Cove just uh, below us here at Gillespie Gap. And, there's all these different tales of all these people that were scouted during that, and uh, uh, a lot of them are said to have survived the scalping, which is really unusual. So it's to see a cluster yeah. like that or that are supposed the natives to. Natives were really mm-hmm. in a hurry, so, so they didn't do a third. <laughs> so uh, I think there's a few of those that are uh, that definitely um, are true. Uh, Lydia Birchfield surviving her scalping. I think there's a lot of good documentation of that. I think there's good documentation about uh, Arthur McFall's wife, uh, Mary Pittman, surviving her scalping. Uh, there's good documentation on that. Some of the other ones, I think, are a little questionable, but um, more about the details of the, the fighting going on just off in the valley here is uh, really interesting to me. There, uh, Every time I read into some of the pension records and stuff like that, I always pick out a new detail that I didn't know before. What about you? Um couple things. I was uh, very interested in John's revelation that uh, Griffith uh, Rutherford's expedition had gone through the Toe River Valley to mm-hmm. the Nolichucky. So that was, I found that really interesting. Uh, but the, the neatest thing for me was just refreshing myself on all the details because teaching a survey of American history, I never could go into those details with my classes. 
So that was that was really great for me to to say, oh yeah, I remember reading that, but I never was able to talk in class much about things like that. I think one of the things I found interesting is, uh, for example, when um, this is a little beyond maybe some of the folks who've listened here, but uh, another uh, gentleman who's in the Historical Society with us, Chris Hollifield, and I did a couple of books uh, for Arcadia Publishing on our region, and one of them was a little Switzerland. And we talk about the hanging of a Nathaniel Riddle from what's called the Marion Tree, which is out at uh, Biglin Lodge. And for anybody who's ever in Western North Carolina, that's just a small hotel in, in the little Switzerland area, but we, we put that in there. But the more we've researched, especially with this, I think we've learned that that was a fallacy, that it did not happen. But that it did happen in Wilkes County with Benjamin Cleveland. Uh, he apparently swung a couple of folks from a tree up there. It's what it's called. The Tory Oak. Tree. Yeah, the Tory Oak. Mm -hmm. And if you read the account, it's very similar to what they said about Nathaniel. So I think we may have debunked something that's went on for years in our region about about the Over Mountain Men. Now the ones in uh, Wilkes County, I think, were, were riddles as well, so I don't remember their first names. Yeah. So, you know, it just moved down the mountain, so to speak, a little bit. So I, I was a little surprised, you know, to, to run into that little fact, I guess, uh, while we were working on this and was, was kind of excited about it. So one of the things that really uh, is striking about this battle is talking about the fact that this was, I'm going to call it a precursor to the Civil War because it is neighbor versus neighbor, brother versus brother in several occasions. Mm -hmm. The bigger staffs. Yeah. And then you have one Englishman, really, and that's Ferguson. And the rest of them are all Americans. Yeah. No regular British soldiers at the, at the battle. Yeah. So, so what do we think about the quote-unquote... Ferguson. Yeah. What do we think about these Tories, so to speak? You know, I mean, that, that's one of the things I think that a lot of historians mention is it wasn't as black and white as we think it is, you know, that everybody wanted to be rid of England necessarily. Oh, there were a lot of people who were completely satisfied with the status quo, mm -hmm. uh, especially being pretty far away from the areas of British control, mm -hmm. uh, being in the south and over into this region. And, and they just didn't see any reason to rock the boat and get involved. Plus, there were a lot who were, I don't know, would you say neutral, who didn't take a side until they were forced to. Or they might change sides a couple of times because they would be supporters of the group that was closest to them. You know, if there were Whig forces in the neighborhood, you know, they were patriot. And if they're loyalists, they were loyalists. I think your prime example there is Henry Gillespie here in mm -hmm. the Spruce Pine area. Mm -hmm. uh, he had the toll road that they went down, but yet they kidnapped him, I guess would be the word, <laughs> incarcerated him until they got the, the group down the mountain uh, here near where we're recording and uh, held him, but then he doesn't go tattle on him. And I was a little surprised at that because he'd also received guarantees from Ferguson and King George that, you know, as long as he swore oath that, uh, you know, they would protect him. Going back to Arthur McFalls, he's another good example of that. Uh, he starts out the war on the uh, Whig or the Patriot side, heavily involved in the campaigns against the Cherokees. And then whenever the British soldiers are... Charleston Falls, and it looks like Britain's going to win. He switches over, and at King's Mountain, he's fighting for the the King of England there on the top of the mountain. So much so that they uh, put a rope around his neck and is going to hang him there at the Biggerstaff's plantation. But uh, McDowell stepped forward and get him out of it, although they failed to get his brother out of it. And so after that happens, uh, he ends up uh, signing up and uh, fighting for the Patriots again. And he does such a good job that after the war, he applies for a pension for his Revolutionary War service, being very careful not to note what he did at King's Mountain. And, and, he, gets, and he gets his money. And, and it's interesting to me, you see the same thing 80 years later in the Civil War. Certainly. Exactly the same thing. Well, um, there's the old maxim, the worst side to be on in the Civil War is the uh, losing side. So you don't want to come out on the bad end of that. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're about like that, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I'm sure some of them were genuinely loyal to the king, but I think it was often a case of proximity. Yeah. Or who, uh, because the British had, you know, so many of the people in Carolina, the British had hard coin, coin to pay. And, the, you know, when the 
Wicks needed supplies. They often had no funding to pay for it. Um, but you know, they had the resources because they had some they had some money to pay for some supplies, and so many Wigs didn't. Well, I think we've already hit on what we want to talk about next, and that's the fact, as I mentioned, it was a civil war, and it was brutal. And I think we've seen that demonstrated, and we tried to demonstrate that in the podcast, talking about the brothers from Rutherford County, that all four of them died in it. Uh, what, what do you all think about that? The, the fact that it was as brutal as it was. The story of them... Um yelling each other's names to get their attention to poke their heads out around the trees and then taking shots at them just really kind of drives home just the fact that uh, you're trying to kill somebody that maybe a month or two before you would have been uh, helping uh, round up their cattle or hoeing their garden or doing any number of things. I I think the nature of war is part of it too because to get a decent war started you have to work up some decent hatreds mm-hmm. and animosities, and and uh, I think the Whig leaders were pretty good at doing that. Well, I think that um, there was some exaggeration, you know, um, telling about Ferguson's threat. Yeah, why don't we a, talk about that? Get some fervor built up. Yeah, I, I think there's maybe evidence he may not have said everything they said he did. There's some things that we know for sure that he said, like he uh, published that uh, broadside where he uh, refers to the Overmountain Men as uh, the Drake's mankind, and that if you don't come out and uh, and fight for them, then your women will find somebody that will, that kind of thing. So, uh, but um, and the lay uh, waste to your, you know, the countryside and hang your leaders and well, you know the fire and sword thing. Yeah, that's that's documented, the, correct? The fire and sword thing isn't documented. Is it not? Uh, there's. Uh, it's definitely something they were telling at the time, but he didn't write it down. And so there's some historians that think that uh, maybe Shelby and Sevier might have made that up. To, uh, they were good propagandists. So um, I'm not saying that he did, but uh, the possibility <laughs> hangs out there. I've heard uh, um, some of the uh, some of the uh, Revolutionary War actors that really get into that talk about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's certainly true that uh, Ferguson had no respect for the provincials, for mm-hmm. the you know, backcountry folks, but uh, we, we got a up close reckoning, <laughs> realized, uh, unfortunately. I think, again, you know, that you mentioned about war. Things happen in war that don't happen in any other time just because the nature of what it is. And it always spirals out from out of control. You think of the picture that we're given of the Revolutionary War of uh, Folks dressed in their finest clothes, standing in lines, taking shots at each other, and that there wasn't the the, the brutal uh, uh, war against civilians like you'll see uh, in later wars. But that was definitely going on in the Revolution, especially in the backcountry. Speaking of, let's address one thing real quick there, and that's the fact that we always, you know, you, you mentioned the lines and all firing at once and whatever, and there were always was always talk that, you know, the Patriots fought behind the trees and whatever. But you mentioned, and I know we talked about it in one podcast, that Kings Mountain's really the only battle that happened in. Because of the terrain, in part? Uh, the terrain was part of why that happened there. Um, the fact that Ferguson picked the top of the hill to try to defend, and it was so easily lent itself with those big trees and the big rocks to hide behind to pick him off. But... Um, yeah, you just don't see the that Indian style of fighting that they uh, they call it happen um, as widespread as the stereotype is. So. Well, and again, the I'll call it the Rebel Yell. It makes its appearance for the first time here, way before anything happens in the Civil War. Uh, and and that was kind of interesting. Was was researching. There are a couple of clips on YouTube of actual Civil War veterans giving the yell. Mm. And it's nothing like you think it would be. I mean, or like it's modern day demonstrated. I thought that was kind of interesting to me. I mean, it's more of an Indian war hoop, I guess you'd say, than anything. Okay, they're real people. And I think that was the one big takeaway that I got from this, is that all of a sudden, instead of these storied figures that we read about in books, they, they assumed life for me while I was recording this. So, and they weren't all heroes. Yeah, and that's what I wanted us to talk about here for a minute. So, 
who excited you and who disappointed you, if you had to pick one of them? We talked about severe. You know, for me, the, the I, I won't say overblown, that's not the word, but the, the nature of how he's been elevated for the battle and the vilification of Patrick Ferguson. Um, again, he's no saint, but he's also a British officer in the army, and he is charged with prosecuting the war. You know, I don't know if he did anything wholly out of line from that. He was doing his job. He was doing his job, exactly, and that's the... I mean, he was highly valued by Cornwallis. Mm -hmm. You know, and to me, that was, I think, the most surprising thing. I, I really wanted him to be this bad guy. <laughs> And he's nuanced. He was a, a, a good leader trying to rally the troops, even though really wasn't lost by that time. And, mm -hmm. and right out there in front, which got him killed, mm -hmm. but he didn't, you know, he didn't run and hide. And what was he doing? Chopping down the white flags if anybody, any of his men did try to surrender? Uh, yeah, I also found it interesting that, you know, he was basically wounded in his arm and his leg. So he only had one arm and one good leg, really, during this battle. And that's they count seven, seven bullets in his body? Is what um, I read. Uh, one of them says they counted seven, another one says nine. Another account says that uh, besides the seven that hit him in the main part of his body, that his uniform was shot all to pieces. So, uh, they think that maybe up to 50 bullets might have nicked him. Uh, mm -hmm. Wow. And of course, the aftermath after he was dead and, you know, that um, battle lust or whatever. That's a little disappointing what happens there. Yeah, and we didn't really get into desecrated that. by all accounts and, yeah. uh, and little... mistreatment in general of the prisoners that were taken. Of course, they didn't have food to feed them at, on, you know, after a point. But, you know, in that heat of the battle, they still, uh, I, I think there's... <laughs> It was on both sides. They were saying, "Remember Tarleton's quarter," you know, referring mm -hmm. to the British commander who had, who uh, was, uh, they believed had <laughs> killed uh, killed prisoners, and so they're going to return, do the same. But well, and then of course they had their I'll call it a kangaroo court or whatever you want to call it. Their the bigger yeah. staffs, and they were just going to start hanging people. Yeah, convicted thirty, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, again. You know, we're talking about maybe some of the less savory aspects. You already touched on the Indian Wars. I mean, uh, it's it, it was so a very brutal time. Cliff, you know, clearing out Indian villages, whether they had caused any problems or not, killing a large majority and selling many of them into slavery. I think the brutality side is something that we try to sugarcoat a little bit as the victors, so to speak. But... You know, again, I'm not trying to excuse anything on the other side, but uh, that that was kind of drove home to me working on this a little more than ever before. When you really get into the details, the whole thing's a lot more brutal than you uh, sure. than you kind of get. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of, I do think it does paint the backwoodsmen in a bit of a positive light, though, because they did seize the moment, so to speak. You know, they weren't waiting on someone to take care of them. They went and took care of business, and that, that I thought spoke that's, well for them. It, it did, and of course, that's their lives. They have they must take care of themselves on the out in the wilderness. Yeah. So it was the, the way of life to not wait until events, stuff happened to them. They were going to go out and take the bull by the horn, so to speak. So. And, and again, it's war, so you know things are going to happen that maybe would not happen at any other time. If you had to pick a place where all this happened, which is basically in a 170-mile prick, roughly, from Sycamore Shoals to Kings Mountain, if you had to pick a place uh, on either the trail or at the battle site, what's your favorite and why? I think that the, the top of Yellow Mountain Gap is probably the most beautiful scene that you're probably going to get. Uh, I think it would be also if I had the artistic talent to try to do like one of those oil paintings that show the men crossing there. You can get some spectacular sunsets. You see the Toe River Valley. You see the Black Mountains. It's uh, uh, just for scenic beauty alone. It's one of the most uh, beautiful spots that you can go to. And on top of that, it's also the biggest physical obstacle that any army in the American Revolution crossed was the the top of that mountain. Uh, so, so King's Mountain was nothing to them. No, exactly. What about you, Ronald? 
Well, here's my time for confession. I have never been to King's Mountain. Ah. And uh, it's on my it's on my list now. I, I enjoy Sycamore Shoals, um, you know, just seeing the mustard area there. I visited Davenport Springs, and that's that's interesting. The cemetery where Robert Sevier mm-hmm. is reportedly buried. That's beautiful little valley. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I've got an interesting take on this because I literally live a couple hundred feet above where they camped in the Grassy Creek area of Mitchell County. So every morning while I was recording this, I would be going to work and I'd be driving through where these guys camped and then where they walked. And I guess I didn't think about that at the time, but now for some reason it crosses my mind, you know, as I'm going down the mountain. And think about the determination to, you know, all those days and nights on the trail, not knowing what you were going to find when you got where you were headed. Or when Ferguson would run into you. Yeah, you know, what if Ferguson had turned and attacked, gone after them instead of waiting? Yeah. So the question now is, do you have a personal connection to the Elder Mountain story at all? You know, either by a relative or something. I already mentioned, you know, the fact that uh, I live literally within a quarter mile of where they camped. I've got a lot of personal connections to the to the trail. Uh, like, um, I was basically born on the trail. If you since uh, hospitals just down the way, if you think about it, um, and um, I had multiple ancestors that uh, that, that were on it. Uh, Major Jonathan Tipton's a great great grandfather of mine. Uh, there's probably uh, three or four others. Uh, so you got a bit of a connection that way. Worked on the park on the trail for years. Done archaeology work on them. It's been a a much bigger part of my life than I would have thought it would have been. Well, of course, I have a great-granddad six generations back who supposedly was there, and that's William Davis, and we talk about him in one of the podcasts. Uh, and he literally is buried on the side of the road. <laughs> if, yes. if you're ever up here, it's easy to get to his grave. But, you know, obviously there's some discussion whether or not he was there, but, uh, but, but you know, that, that's a little something special to me, even if we were to prove that he wasn't. Just, you know, uh, the story behind him. Another confession, I think most of my ancestors were Tories. <laughs> so I can't find any of them. Uh, well, Adam Hoppus has a revolutionary pension, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I think he was in Wilkes County. I'm not sure he uh, had anything to do with Over Mountain March and the Battle of Kings Mountain, but I'll claim him now, we, we do have to confess here, we were really focused in on the Avery, Mitchell, McDowell area of this because that's where we live. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of folks in our region that have ties to these folks. You know, why don't we talk about a couple of them a little bit? Well, um, I mentioned Major Jonathan Tipton. Um, uh, it's kind of interesting to think that a lot of... Uh, a lot of folks maybe wouldn't even exist in the same way that they do, because um, Jonathan Tipton uh, and his uh, his next wife uh, Kasaya uh, got together because Kasaya's first husband was uh, Robert Sevier, and he got uh, mortally wounded at Kings Mountain. So they would have never got together if it hadn't been for that battle. Uh, Five of their sons settled in the Tow River Valley, and the fact they're both buried here, we don't know where she's at. But the fact that they're both in this valley to me is interesting. Of course, you have the garlands that, that come out of some of these. The Davenports, I mean, we can name and name and name. Wiseman. Wiseman's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just amazing the, the ties that where we live today have remained from, you know, some of these guys that were in this battle. My youngs were in the North Cove, and uh, you know, they perhaps joined in, but there's no documentation, so just the, the notes from Judge Avery that there were Youngs involved in the resistance to the Indian raids, but I don't know that they took part in the march. Okay, well, well, I think we did a pretty good job covering a lot of this thoroughly, but there are questions that remain that either have not been answered or have not been answered clearly. Always questions with history. Yeah, always. So if you had to pick a mystery from this battle or from these folks, that you would like to suddenly have a revelation and have the true answer, what would it be and why? There's so many good ones to pick from. I guess one of the ones I would like to know about is um, 
going back to that uh, Cherokee War, Brigadier General Griffith Rutherford, according to uh, two letters uh, from the end of July of 1776, mentions that he handpicked uh, several hundred horsemen and rode over and attacked uh, an encampment of Cherokee warriors on the Nolichucky River that was 30 miles from their lines. Now, given where Rutherford should have been camped at that time, that would have been around uh, the mouth of uh, Buck Creek down near Pleasant Gardens, that would almost certainly have taken him through the Tow River Valley. And so it's just frustrating that we've got those two little snippets that mention that they went over there, but we don't know what happened. Did he find them? Did they, did they have a fight over there? Uh, did he get over there and the Indians were gone? Did they, what route did they take through the valley? I, there's a lot with that I'd like to know. Okay. What about you, Rhonda? What would you like to know? I'd like to know what uh, really happened to Virginia Sal. <laughs> was she mistaken because she had red hair? Was she mistaken for Patrick Ferguson and killed for that reason? Or mm-hmm. was she, did she actually take up arms and, and help with the defense, as some sources say? Mm-hmm. But uh, she's buried there. He was buried there on Kings Mountain. Some say next to or in the same grave as Ferguson, or at least with the other uh, killed toys that were killed. So mm-hmm. I'd like to know a little bit more about her. Uh, I've always been fascinated by you know, women like Molly Pitcher and Virginia Sal, who are mm-hmm. on the battlefield taking part. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be kind of interesting to know the role they played with the Army. Yeah, I mean, we can dance around, you know, were they mistresses of Ferguson? Yeah, they might but have camp, been camp followers, but uh, armies have to have people to prepare food yeah. and wash clothes and so forth. Yeah. And uh, oftentimes they did take part in the mm-hmm. bats. So Jonathan mentioned something in past, well, I say in passing, but we didn't really delve much into this in the podcast. But the fact was that when the two deserters left them at Yellow Mountain, the uh, leadership made a decision to go a different route. Now, let's talk about that a little bit, Jonathan, because we're not really sure. They called it a southern route that they were going to go on before. We kind of speculated. We wonder if they'd ran out the road and down into what is in essence now Glen Eyre, down through there to, to come down. But The three oldest sources on that are uh, Ramsey Draper and Hayden are the uh, different historical authors. And they all agree that after they uh, left, that they decided instead of taking this more southerly route, they were going to take the more northerly route. Now from, you would think that uh, the Yellow Mountain Road, straight off the mountain down uh, Roaring Creek, uh, right. and, uh, would have been the way that they would have been intentionally going anyway. So if they were going to take a southerly route, the, uh, looking at the just a physical map of the area, the only thing that makes sense to me is they were going to ride back up to the ridge line and ride the ridge line down to basically Rome Mountain and take the route off from there that I guess follows what 276 is that the name of the road? Uh, Carver's Gap 261. 261. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you know that to me that's interesting because we know nothing of a, a path through there other than you know I mean nothing like the Yellow Mountain Road for example. Mm-hmm. I mean that was a well established. And speaking of that, my next mystery. And this is more of a local bent. I'd love to know what happened to Samuel Bright of Bright's Trace. And that was the original name of the Yellow Mountain Road. And he came up into this area around the proclamation of 1763 time. But uh, he leaves and we don't know where he goes. Uh, of course, what did Deaton say that uh, he one harsh winter where he guided the mm-hmm. you know settlers over the mountains and a family got stuck? in the snow, because of snow, early snow, and this family of Grants stayed with the Brights, and there were a couple of marriages, and they all picked Mm -hmm. up and headed west. That's what Deaton hinted at. And they were the the ancestors of President Ulysses S. Grant, is what he says. I don't know. I don't know. Now, again, that's a local history type thing. A local history type of thing, yes. Local legends. You know, but the fact that, uh, you know, his name was attached to that early road even before the Watauga settlements is something that's interesting to me. Yeah, there's um, going with some more local history. Like uh, there's the folks that insist that the oldest part of the English Inn was standing whenever the Overmountain Men come through. I can't believe that there was that it was there. Uh, I think it's probably from the post-war. There, uh, there are people that say that it was at least that first little section of the cabin had was standing. So I'd like to know exactly 
how many people were in the Tow River Valley at the time. I've heard mm-hmm. some rumors that uh, perhaps uh, that Henry Rowland may have made it to uh, what uh, became Burnsville as early as uh, 1777. Mm-hmm. And so uh, did you have a few homesteads up here? It seems like you'd be extremely exposed to um, Cherokee raids if you were. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't mm-hmm. under treaty yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's interesting to me. Uh, I guess, you know, again, that's a local history bent, but... No rights left over that... No, mm-hmm. no. That uh, we have record of anyway. No, that's for sure. Well, we shift gears now. Okay. And uh, let, let's, let's do what historians hesitate to do, but sometimes love to do, and that's do the what-ifs. Movie producers the, Yeah, the movie... Yeah, writers so, love yeah. the what-ifs. So, so we'll do the Hollywood version of this now. Okay. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we know what happened. The battle takes place. You know, the Patriots are victorious. Cornwallis retreats and then eventually hits into Virginia, and it's over. Uh, again, we can say what we want to say, but I do feel that you know, Kings Mountain had a lot to do with that. I really do, uh, from from what I've learned. But well, the uh, president said so. Yeah, <laughs> Jefferson and uh, oh. T- Teddy Roosevelt yeah. both said that the Kings Mountain was the turning point in the South. Yeah. So um, before we get into that a little bit, let's, I wanted to give us a little time to talk about Draper, uh, Lyman Draper. Uh, we, we referred to him some during the podcast. The last episode, we briefly touched on the fact that he wrote a book uh, about Kings Mountain and its heroes. He's really the only one who's ever seriously documented it in terms of the battle, and he actually had many years later accounts, but but he did, you know, make an effort to... Get some first-hand accounts. Yeah, and, and bring it back from obscurity, because really this all comes out, when I guess we should say that, that this is around 1880, about 100 years after the battle takes place is when the book comes out. So anything you want to say about him or about the book? First of all, we owe a huge debt to Lyman C. Draper. If it wasn't for him... He kept. Uh, he actually wrote letters to people in all these little communities, asking all these questions, and he kept that correspondence. And so, uh, the Draper manuscripts is what they're referred to. They're a house at the University of Wisconsin, but we have some in the local area. They have them on microfilm in the Appalachian State University Library. There are thousands and thousands of letters to go through there. So, if it wasn't for him collecting all of that, all of this history would be gone. But uh, he does have some interesting bits about him. I, one of the most interesting things about Lyman C. Draper is he got so into these questions uh, and got so frustrated about the little things that he couldn't uh, couldn't answer about the Kings Mountain campaign and the history on the frontier that he actually converted from being a uh, staunch Baptist into being a, into spiritualism, which means that he would actually go to these uh, guys and they would have seances where he would try to contact the spirits of George Rogers Clark and uh, <laughs> these different Revolutionary War heroes. Mm-hmm. And he would then ask them historical minutia questions to see if he could get the uh, right answers out of them. So I, I just uh, thought that one little bit of him is uh, pretty interesting. Now, I will say, uh, for a little bit of the book, and it is a very easy read, I guess is the word I would use. If, if you're at least bit interested in the Bible, I think it's worth worth reading the book. A lot of people knock it for clumsy language, but because he does, he's very fond of commas and long, long sentences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wouldn't hurt from for modern eyes to see somebody take a little bit of an editorial pen to it. But I think it reads well. I enjoy it. It's a, it's an enjoyable book to pick up and and to go through. So you've taught history, Rhonda. What do you think of Mister Drake? Um, I have not read the book in entire in its entirety, but certainly parts of it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very much like other writing of the time, very wordy. Mm-hmm. But but I think coming back to what Jonathan said, the fact that he took it on, oh, yeah. and oh, yeah, there's no reason for him to, yeah. you know, there's no reason for him to have taken it on either, really. Historical curiosity. Yeah, yeah he doesn't have a personal connection to it. His uh, his his folks are involved in the uh, Lexington Concord fight, not the stuff down south. So. And we might mention he was in Wisconsin when he was doing all this, too. He's not even in our area when he's working on this. Do that long distance. And, and this is pre-internet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, think about that. You know, what, what y'all, he, 
Well, he, to do. well, he's credited with saving a lot of those documents would have went up in flames during the Civil War if they hadn't have been sent to him and preserved in Wisconsin because I believe Burke County Courthouse was had the torch put to it during the war. So a lot of that stuff was... Okay, now we'll shift gears because I did want to get a little piece in there about Draper if we could. But uh, let, again, let's flex our what-if thoughts for a little bit. Let's start here. Uh, with a fellow that we delved into was actually the third most popular episode that we had listened to, and that was the Cherokee Wars. I was really kind of surprised in a way about that, but I wasn't. But we do bring a character into that by the name of Dragon Canoe that a lot of people probably never heard of much before we talked about him on the podcast. So let's, let's do a what if with him because, you know, it's his... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Aggressive. You know, he, he wanted the white man out of the region and he organized the Cherokee into attacking. What if he decided not to do that? Well, if he had, it turned out to be a huge disaster for the Cherokee to have launched that war in 1776. They actually got a bigger military response against them than Ferguson got later. There were more militiamen that went after the Cherokee from South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia than went to Kings Mountain. Uh, so it was the largest gathering of militia in the entire war in the South. Let's say he doesn't do that. That means all those Cherokee towns, and there's 52 of them, got put to the torch. Those Cherokee towns are still standing. Uh, whenever Ferguson and Cornwallis invade in 1780, if you have the Cherokee as a serious military power in 1780, which they would have been if they hadn't have fought that war in 1776, then you would have seen... I think certainly Kings Mountain would have never happened. They, you could not have pulled uh, these militiamen off the frontier to send them after the British Army on the other side of the mountain. They wouldn't have left their homes undefended. And not only that, if he had done a uh, coordinated assault with the, them in 17, with the British in 1780, they could have wiped out those over mountain settlements, and they very well could have seen at least the war move north into Virginia, if not an entirely different outcome. You might have ended up with a peace treaty being signed with Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, as still British colonies like Canada ended up at the end of the war because uh, they tried to get Canada in on the side too. I think the outcome for the Cherokee would have been the same. Uh, it just more drawn out and maybe a little less fiercely violent at the time, you know, but they still would have lost their land and been yeah. population decimated. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. And as you said, I believe it would have just been 10 to 15 years yeah, out rather than... Out instead of yeah. so immediate. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the precursors to Kings Mountain for a minute. There were several battles in the summer of 1780 that honestly I was not aware of very much before we started this. Mm-hmm. Thickety Fort, for example, uh, and one we're going to talk about now, Musgrove's Mill, again, not aware of them, and they directly involved some of these guys before they even went to Kings Mountain. So, uh, Jonathan, let, let's talk about this Musgrove's Mill one. What if Captain Inman, he hadn't pulled things out for the Overmountain men, you know, and, and that had been a disaster rather than a victory? Okay. Like I said, I was in a grad school at UC for a while and um, never completed the degree, but my thesis was on a summer campaign of the Overmountain men in 1780. So it's these battles uh, here. Uh, Thickety Fort, Wofford's Ironworks, Musgrove's Mill. And uh, the um, Battle of Musgrove's Mill is a really key one because there were two huge disasters that happened within days of that uh, fight. There was the, the rout of the Continental Army at Camden, and then there was um, Thomas Sumter, the Gamecock uh, that he's called. He gets routed at a I think uh, Fishing Creek is the name of the place that he gets uh, almost killed at. And so his militia gets routed there. And the uh, the Overmountain men uh, had sent at least 200 guys on down to a place called Musgrove's Mill. And at that point, they had ridden all night thinking that they were going to find about 300 poorly trained loyalist militia to fight. It turns out, just by coincidence, uh, that there was... Uh, another 300 or so British regular army troops that had moved, been, uh, moved up there from the fort at 96. Mm-hmm. The Overmountain men, one of the key things to them were they were always um, reliant on their horses. They were rifle arm mounted infantry. They rode to the fight, they'd get off, fight on foot. Things went badly, they'd get on their horses and ride out of there because they had ridden all night to get to Musgrove's Mill. Getting on those horses and riding out of there wasn't an option. 
And so uh, they were facing a disaster there. If the British discovered them and they couldn't get away, then you're going to have men like Isaac Shelby and James Williams, who are prominent colonels at uh, Battle Kings Mountain, that are just going to either be killed or captured there. And so the whole Kings Mountain campaign might have been derailed. But uh, this uh, Georgia captain, Captain Shadrach Inman, stepped forward. He came up with this plan to cross the river and do an Indian tactic where you would go in and basically shoot the place up, get them to chase you, and suck them back into an ambush. And they were able to get out that way. But if things had went differently there, the whole war in the backcountry could have been drastically different just because you would have lost so much of the leadership that took part in the Kings Mountain campaign. And, this and is the a- confidence that was built up because of that little victory mm-hmm. at Musker's Mill that, that fired them up, fired exactly. up the week. Mm-hmm. And again, here's a little battle that nobody's ever heard of much, except, you know, the folks right around in that area, and you don't realize the implications. Yeah, they just made it to South Carolina State Park just a few years ago, so if anybody's interested, you can go there and you can walk the ground and learn a little bit more about it. It's a new place. Now, the big question, I think, and we could have thrown this in our mystery, and that is a big what if. What if Ferguson, instead of bellowing, if he did, and we've already established this may or may not have happened, where he said he was going to go lay waste to the land with fire and sword and hang their leaders and all of that. Instead of saying it, what if he had gone over the mountains and taken out the upper mountain men, or at least attacked the settlement over there? And more importantly, something that even comes into play in the Civil War, there were lead mines that you talked about earlier, Jonathan, in Virginia, he would have had a route to get to those, the, the saltful lead mines up in Virginia. You know, what, what about if this had happened instead of, you know, what did take place, which is a lot of bluster, and then we have the battle down on the mountain? If he had ridden across the mountains, he had 1,100 men with him, assuming that he didn't issue the threat, uh, and he's just facing the remnants of uh, the McDowell's force from uh, Burke County, Shelby's men and, uh, and, and Severe's. He's uh, probably got at least two to one odds against those guys. Uh, they're able to probably put up maybe 500 men, maybe a few more. Pretty good odds he might beat them. From there, he would have had the option of going on up through southwest Virginia, fighting Campbell, who would have had uh, maybe 400, 500 guys. And then if he gets control of those Chiswell landmines, that, that is providing the lead that made the bullets for the Continental Army. So if the Americans lose that, maybe they're able to, to replace that with the French sources uh, by shipping it overseas. But it's hard to win a revolution if you don't have bullets for your guns. Any comments there from you, Rhonda, about... All of these are fascinating to <laughs> to contemplate, you know, to think about the what ifs. But uh, one of my favorite historical quotes is that history does not disclose its alternatives. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, true. Uh, so you, all we can do is just speculate about what might have been different. To me, I guess now that I look back on one of our questions earlier, that's the biggest mystery. Why he did not pursue an action instead of just the words. That's, that's one of the reasons why I'm like lending a little more credence to this may have been a plant to kind of incite everybody a little bit rather than, you know, he might have said something like it, but maybe not to the level that it was blown up to. He either made the threat and then didn't follow up mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. didn't didn't make any threats and was overconfident and knew it wouldn't come to him. Didn't think it would come to him. Okay, now let's put the shoe on the other foot. What if he issues his command and the overmount men basically accept it and lay down their arms and nothing happens? The first off, that would have never happened would with Severe and, and Shelby, I don't think. No. I don't think they would have ever let that happen. No. But if they did. What would have happened? That basically means the Battle of Kings Mountain never happens. Mm-hmm. And so um, if the Battle of Kings Mountain doesn't happen, then Cornwallis doesn't uh, retreat back into South Carolina for a few months. So you would basically the war moves north. Um, British get firm control over Georgia. British get firm control over South Carolina. British have firm control over North Carolina. And then you're you're going to have a lot of major combat going on in the uh, in Virginia and Virginia is the uh, place that's uh, providing the whole revolution with lots of food, lots of supplies, lots of men and manpower. And so if you've got a lot of fighting going on there, it really uh, makes the outcome of the war a lot murkier. I think the, if, that had ha- if that had been the case, the response from the Overmountain settlements on the Watauga and the Holston and so forth, I think they would just picked up and moved a little further west to... to to avoid it all. 
Because they already right. Indian fighters, so they could have said, "Well, that's no." Well, they say that, they say that one of their plans were if worse comes to worse, that they were going to put their families on rafts and send them down the Tennessee River and try to get to Spanish territory. Was one of the things they thought they might try to do. They'd already but, moved a lot. They could have just kept on. Moving. But it's it's not out of the, uh, it's not unreasonable to think that they could have laid their arms down after the Charleston fell. All of those people that were so for the revolution in South Carolina, a large number of them, thought the war was basically over at that point, and they started taking the oath of allegiance. I don't think a lot of folks realize how much that damaged uh, the Patriots for Charleston to fall. Uh, again, you know, I, I thought that was that's another part of this that I didn't really realize. You know, I mean, five thousand of those men were captured at, at Charleston, and that was a huge blow. As huge a blow as what happens at Kings Mountain later. Again, I, I was kind of surprised to, to learn about that. You know, again, in the context of everything, I think that really well, you know drives us together. It's every continental or regular army troop from the state of Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. They all go in. Prisoner of war camps at that point. Now, here, here is mystery number two in our discussions. We can talk about the defensive nature of this, but why in the world, when he was only 30 miles from Cornwallis and Charlotte, did Ferguson go up on that mountain and stop? I mean, really, you know, he's got 30 miles to go to get back to the British lines. Now, we can go back and forth about, well, you know, he, he's expecting this huge uprising, but it just seems to me like making a run for it there <laughs> made sense. Well, uh, one problem is he knows he's being pursued. He doesn't know the numbers that are pursuing, but he thinks that it's several thousand men outnumbering him, which is correct. There are. He's afraid of getting, uh, he doesn't know where those people are. He's afraid that uh, they could, uh, if they catch him strung out on the road, then uh, then that's about worst case scenario that you're not going to be able to put up a big fight if he, get, if he actually stumbles into an ambush. But uh, knowing from... Our perspective, knowing where the Patriots were and knowing where he was, he could have made it back. And if he had, then that could have uh, made a big difference. Uh, There's no way that uh, the backcountry militia would have uh, tried to assault the main British Army there. He thought that Kings Mountain was a fine defensible point, you know, Mm -hmm. and so all he had to do there, even if he were surrounded, was to wait for Cornwallis to come in and rout the the militia, the Whigs, so... He thought he was fine. It's interesting to me, all right, the top of it was cleared. You know, that's one of the statements he's made. But it's just bizarre to me that he'd crawl up on top of it with all the cover around it. I I mean, maybe he doesn't know what he's fighting against, but you would think he'd have a little bit of sense that these guys would know how to fight in the woods, so to speak, you know, because where they live. But it's kind of like that didn't bother With the rifles that had a little more accurate from a distance. Mm -hmm. But he had bayonets. So, and, you know, the- and it goes back to the point where up till this point, if you make a bayonet charge on a militia, they run and they mm-hmm. don't come back. And this was one of the big changes that happened in that. If mm-hmm. if um, if whatever he did, does those bayonet charges, if Campbell's been scattered and Shelby's been scattered, then then he's achieved a pretty big victory. But they keep coming back is the thing, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. So there, there's another mystery we didn't uncover. How did these guys get their troops talked into coming back when before we always ran from the bayonet. I think the cover uh, that they were able to, uh, when they came back, they're able to take cover behind those trees and rocks makes a big difference. It's a, it doesn't take as much to steady your nerves whenever you can fight from cover than going out in the middle of a field uh, after you've been run off from that field once and mm-hmm. have to go out there and stand making to the world again. Yeah. And here, here after all these days of tiresome travel and trying to, keep their spirits up and here was an enemy against which to vent their frustrations and their, they had their target and yeah. you know they were fixed on that target plus i mean um, there's a lot of personal hatred yeah. of ferguson and the guys that are with him and so that's going to play into it as well it's just a it's a little different than trying to fight some nameless faceless uh, soldier from uh, that's a Hessian from Germany or a regular British Army troop yeah. from Ferguson Dover. personified the threat. Yeah. yeah. So that, that lends credit to, um, or credence to, um, that he actually did uh, issue that threat. So. Now, especially we got into the desecration route that we discussed a little earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they, there was a true hatred there. 
So, with that said, you know, the one thing he doesn't have is the internet, the radio, any way to get a message quickly somewhere. So, you know, uh, one of the things we documented during the podcast was, you know, he sends off all these dispatches to Cornwallis saying, you know, here they are. And I remember the last one uh, that, that we talked about when he actually got up on the mountain. Uh, you know, he said, if you, basically, if you'll come, we can wrap these guys and be done with this. Is is the essence of the message that he gave. But let's do the what if there. What if Cornwallis, number one, got the message. <laughs> Secondly, decided to act on the message and come to Ferguson's defense or aid or whatever you want to say. Well, um if Cornwallis gets there in time, um, I don't think that there's any doubt that that would have been a huge British Changed trigger. the whole course of the war, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so uh, that's another, that would have been another fiasco on the heels of Camden and Charleston and all the other ones that they uh, suffered. And so you very well may have seen the same kind of thing that ha- happened in North Carolina, happened in South Carolina after Charleston. Maybe uh, after that point, a lot of the people that are supporting the uh, cause for independence feel that this is pointless. Uh, this is over with. We need to understand. Uh, well. Mm-hmm. well, speaking of, something we mentioned is when they go to attack him uh, up on the mountain, they pick 900 of the best riflemen and put them on their horses. We've not talked much about the guys that remained behind. So how do they play into this? A little bit here. And, you know, would that have been enough of a deterrence had Cornwallis come? We had, you know, another 11, 1200 sitting back there, roughly, or somewhere um, in that neighborhood. I, I don't think it would have made a, enough of a difference. Uh, depending upon when uh, Cornwallis shows up on the battlefield, uh, he would almost certainly would have, if he'd gotten there in time to save Ferguson, he would have got there in time to destroy that forest that's there before the other ones get there. So he would have just destroyed them in detail, I think. He would have uh, whipped one and then whipped the other. We're kind of to a wrap-up spot. So um, let, let's let's go around the horn and, and just wrap this up a little bit. Uh, maybe final thoughts, anything we didn't bring up that you'd like to discuss? And, uh, let's just start. Um, final thoughts. Uh, well, as um, many years as I've put in studying this, there's always new new parts that come out that that uh, just really adds to the richness of the story. The um, Overmountain Victory Trail as a whole covers some of the most beautiful areas in the south and in the southern mountains. And so it's uh, just an incredible place to, to go out and see some of these places and just try in your mind's eye to picture this uh, these thousand horsemen riding across with the mountains set behind them and whatnot. Just, uh, just some incredible scenes and scenery that really would make a good Hollywood film if you had the right person making it. I think that given the importance of the battle in the overall course of the Revolutionary War, that people haven't been truly aware of how important it was. And so I think I'm just really grateful that these podcasts have been produced, that David, you put them on with all the folks that uh, have assisted because it is important to make people aware of just how important Kings Mountain was and the lead up to the aftermath, all of it. So uh, thank you, David, for uh, this, your hard work uh, on, on, in these efforts. I know if I wanted to take one thing from it, uh, you know, we always talk about living history. And that's the one thing I think I would say came from this for me, and I hope it did for the listeners is that we made these folks Come human and, and people to you and not just, you know, a name in a book or, uh, you know, something you might have heard in a class or on a test. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, the part, I think, that was so striking to me. Uh, Fleshed out the dull, dry facts. Yeah. And made them, made it, made them uh, so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, like I said, and they were an unruly group, you well, know. <laughs> I, I think... Um, when you take them and you learn about them, flaws and all, uh, it makes what they accomplished that much more amazing because mm-hmm. it makes you realize that today you don't have the excuse that you're not some marble man that's perfect to be able to try to get something done. Yeah, I mean, when you look at what they had to accomplish and the resources available to them, you know, we talked about the chisel lead mines, for example, mm-hmm. and you know they do have that, but very little money, no hope of getting 
much. Although one of the things I know, Jonathan, you mentioned was they talked to their tax collector out of out of the money uh, that they had collected for taxes simply because they told him, if we don't win, you're not going to have a state to go give taxes to anyway. So, I mean, I can never express my admiration also for the efforts that they make. I have to have an air mattress if I go camping. And I just can't imagine <laughs> yeah. the many nights on the trail and the forced, you know, how, how the marches went day after day, climbing up the mountain and down the mountain and up the mountain and down the mountain. Yeah. It's just amazing to me yeah. what they accomplished. I think so too. But, uh, so I guess uh, if, if we want to leave you with anything, that would be uh, hopefully you have a little more sense of pride with these guys. Uh, again, because I think they, you know, they overcome a lot of adversity to do what they did. But it also shows you know, how industrious they were and uh, how determined they were. I think more than anything, uh, you know, the, their determination to me is amazing. Enabled them to accomplish great things. Mm-hmm. It sure did. And if we took a lesson from anything, that would be it, if I had to say to anybody. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you both for taking time to talk uh, for this, uh, this final episode. And okay. let's, uh, if folks have questions, uh, let's send them to our website, MitchellNCHistory.org. By all means. And uh, drop by there and hit the contact button. And if you've got a question or a comment, uh, of course, we have social media. We might mention, you know, we have a Facebook page. We have a uh, Twitter account. And uh, we would love to talk with you more there and, and engage. And if you have some items maybe that we didn't cover, or that you'd like to you know, hear a little bit more about, uh, we, we'd like to know. So we could address them either with uh, stories that we put on our website or maybe something we do in the future, audio-wise or video-wise. But, but uh, this was a, a blessing, I guess I would say more than anything. It was more than I expected it to be when, when we began this. We might mention the, the idea of this was we were just trying to raise awareness of it, get folks around here... Uh, maybe interested in their history a little bit more. And, and hopefully we've done that. I have, and not just in this area, yeah. but all over. Yeah. So Very wide area of interest, I think, has been spot. So, again, thank you for taking your time to listen to us. And, and again, we hope to continue the conversation with you online. Footsteps for Freedom, The Road to Kings Mountain is a production of the Mitchell County Historical Society, a nonprofit organization committed to the preservation of the history, heritage, and culture of Mitchell County. Today's program was written by Jonathan Bennett and narrated and produced by David Biddicks. Special thanks to WTOE in Spruce Pine and WKYK in Burnsville for airing the program. You can also download episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other podcatching software. Learn more at mitchellnchistory.org forward slash OVM. The Mitchell County Historical Society offices are located in the historic Mitchell County Courthouse in Bakersville. We'd love to have you become a member of our society. You can learn more about us on the web at mitchellnchistory.org. There, you can also see show notes about today's episode, links to online resources about the Battle of Kings Mountain and those involved in it, and much more about Mitchell County's history and heritage. You can also visit us on Facebook and Twitter.